Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I think I'd be right on board with potentially what they have really hard doing. Like, oh, the, he's not making a claim like John Howard Yoder that the church fell. With, I mean, that would be an Anabaptist view, is just say, well, that was the kind of the end of the church. He's saying something a little more complicated, and I kind of like what he's doing, and that is, well, the work of Christ is not going to be thwarted by the institution. I think you'd like it. Or maybe you'd find it disturbing. I don't know. No, I think I'd probably be on board with it, Paul. I was trying to explain to someone the other day, the more I read and the more I sort of think about it and pray and just interact with Christianity and church, the broader my perspective goes with like, what is going on with Christianity? I think the really good starting point is that all things were created by him and for him. And once you get that in your head, sort of it really changes your perspective about what is the traditional church versus other religions, versus other contexts, versus other streams of theology. And yeah, no, I think I'd be right on board with potentially what David Bentley Hart's doing. Do you see any um, parallels with what Bonhoeffer was doing? Because I remember quite vividly listening to the podcast about you, yourself, John, and maybe Matt did like a breakdown of the letters by Bonhoeffer and trying to just wrestle with, was he anti-church? Was he saying there's like some new movement outside of church and trying to understand what Bonhoeffer's essays were towards the end of his life? Is that a, a worthwhile comparison? From my point of view, I'm not claiming to be a Bonhoeffer expert. But as you'll notice in the podcast, I'm kind of taking the point of view that Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity and his reaction to the church in Germany is characteristic then of his stance toward the church. John is saying, well, actually, Bonhoeffer was just a good Lutheran, that he still is attached to the institution. Uh, I can't claim to have done enough with Bonhoeffer to refute that reading. But I do know that many would take Bonhoeffer as in accord with something like I've described with, with Hart, and that is that when he's describing a religionless Christianity, whatever he might mean by that, I think it is a kind of support of this understanding. Nobody's going to claim the Nazi German church that you're going to be able to trace the tradition, a continuum of the tradition in that church. And that's clear that he didn't believe that. You know, actually, Bonhoeffer's a young man when all this is happening, but he participates in the start of the uh, confessing church. And so my answer to your question would be, yes, I do see Bonhoeffer in that role Paul, it's just, um, I'm so appreciative to have the book that you've been um, drafting up as part of the material for this course. I was, I was reading through it last night, and man, some just encouraging things in there, aren't there? I find it very enjoyable. Oh, I very much appreciate that. The thing that I was finding encouraging again, Paul, is like, you, rec- you appreciate that Constantinian Christianity is just the norm, right? And even in New Zealand. And there's a certain string within that bow, which goes along the lines of the sacrifices and the, like the, the Torah and all of the Old Testament laws and regulations were exactly what God intended. And so when you look at like getting stoned for picking up firewood on the Sabbath or like burning sacrifices and all like within my Christianity, 
that's celebrated as like the word of God and a really great way of living life. Like that's, it's very hard to, to see your way through the trees because that's just, everybody believes that. Sure. But you, I was having a chat with my friends last night about saying, man, I was reading your book and reading my, this, my friend Paul's book. And he said something along the lines of, you know, one of the things that we encounter here is a lot of people would say it's hard to make generalizations that that was their sacrifice then. And now this is our sacrifice. Now it was really hard work and like a lot of like black and white, you know, that's their version of Christianity. And now we serve this God in these ways. And that's why we give. And that's why we do. And this is why we pray. And this is why we have services. And the word that, that my friend was using was that was their penance. And now this is our penance. Mm. is this kind of idea and man like again it's very freeing when you realize that that's not actually the christianity of jesus this yeah. this loving father where actually our response is just a normal relationship with a loving yeah. father yeah. there's not like a penance involved per se yeah. and it's wacky that like when once you start your starting point is that the old testament was exactly how god intended it and the sacrifice the sacrificial system was exactly what he commanded and then you look at the christianity today it's so understandable that you think man christianity is about hard decisions and about sacrifices once you do away with the idea that it's exactly as you intended it and potentially there was something more going on man it's actually a very freeing place to to get to oh, that's been my experience oh good and what you're describing of course i think is what christianity is supposed to be a freeing experience and instead we've made it a burden that's hard to bear because we've loaded people down with the law. Well, no, it's imputed rights. In other words, but we're still really doing the law one way or another. Mm. And that, that just reading against the grain of the, the New Testament. <laughs> there are alternative readings, even of the sacrificial system. That is kind of complicated. But I, I mean, the obvious place to begin with is Christ, that he is the definitive part of the Bible for Christians. We don't fit Christ to the frame of the Old Testament. We fit the Old Testament to the frame of Christ. That's very un-Jewish of us, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's why we're not Jews. Yeah, man, it's really great news, really. It's just fantastic to be learning these ideas that paint God in a more charitable vision of God, yeah. Sure, <laughs> that we could be, that we could imagine that God is love. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> and it is so unimaginable because I'm afraid that what we've been brought up with, yeah, we got all that love stuff, but actually God is actually pretty mad. And that's literally Calvin. And we're all heirs of Calvin, even if, even if we don't know it, that the, the wrath of God is just predominant in people's image. And in a way, it's easier, I think, we're all in pain enough and dark enough that the wrath of God part, that kind of fits into our kind of pagan orientation anyway. Well, life is shitty and so is God, to put it in crude terms. Uh, that kind of fits with our, our natural inclination, I think. For the love of God to break through, you know, it's a shame that what has to be broken down is a religious training. But I think that also people who have never heard this any of this, for them too, it's also a relief to recognize that the nature of the world that we live in and the God that created it is love. And it gives you a very different perspective, I think, on everything. Yep. Once again, that's just so sweet to hear, Paul. I have to say, I couldn't agree more with you though, that a big part of it is our worldly experience 
we draw conclusions from what we know around us, right? And life can be pretty cruel. And then you, it seems obvious that there's wrath and ruin and, and bad news. You've got all of these other streams of evidence confirming that conclusion, like the Old Testament, like a certain reading of, of Revelation, like a, a certain version of what happens at end times, which is just completely prevalent. You put all these different pieces of the puzzle together and you've got a pretty ugly picture. And yeah, once again, to come through the other side of it is very good news. As and simple as that is. That makes everything worthwhile for me if if I relieve somebody of a bit of suffering. You know, Matt and John were both my students. Mm-hmm. That was what I used to say in the classroom. If I can relieve somebody of experiencing what I experienced. You don't have to bang your head up against this wall. It's really unnecessary. And I think a lot of theological speculation, you know, the intricacies of the will, you know, the sovereignty of God, and a lot of things that we're caught up in were posed these dilemmas that are unanswerable according to a particular theological perspective. And then somebody comes along and says, well, wait a minute, the whole thing's wrong. The whole presumption of who God is, what is primary. Actually, Brad Jerzak does this in a little book uh, that he says this very nicely, that what we've done, we've traded focus on the freedom. We've traded the love of God. God is love. That is the definitive thing in the New Testament. And what happens with Augustinianism clear up through Calvinism in the West is this focus on sovereignty and freedom. And then we've got to protect God's sovereignty. And so much of the maneuvering that is taking place in regard to God's will and human will, it's just because of the presumption that begins in a kind of Augustinian picture of God, that he's defining God according to freedom. And that that definition is right out of Plato. That is, in a Platonic understanding, what is of primary concern in regard to God is freedom. Yeah, but that's not the Bible. That's not the first thing. That's not the primary thing that we should be talking about. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Once again, the, the Constantinian Christianity that we're trying to make our way through is is quite a layered system where you have to, have to once you get into it and peeling back layer by layer, this emphasis, this this exaggeration on free will and free decisions is extremely problematic, but it's also one of the pillars that they, they just put right at the forefront what you're saying is that that's the priority sovereignty and free will becomes the complete focus of christianity within constantinian the system hence the the emphasis on you know the sinner's prayer and hence this idea that this this is me just riffing off your ideas paul but from what i'm picking up here this idea that you can be a christian in your mind without actually having any lifestyle that is in the way of christ what i've perceived as normal christianity is that the most important thing is the prayer is the decision and from there the lifestyle is supposed to reflect that decision that moment rather than the other way around where it is actually the faithfulness of Christ and us living into that. Was that in line with what you're, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, in a sense, what we're doing is very simple. And, and we're going back to a, a very simple New Testament early church understanding. It becomes incomprehensible to us because we've all been indoctrinated with these things like sovereignty, will, you know, as if these are the primary issues. 
They weren't dealing with those issues and they don't need, you don't need to deal with those issues. We've got a kind of complicated view of things that almost obstructs our ability to just comprehend a simple understanding of the gospel. You know, when you go back, you could look at the early church and, and then, you know, the reason you go to the early church, because the New Testament has become so contentious, you know, Irenaeus and Ignatius, we believe they knew or heard the, the preaching of John, and, uh, you know, they were directly in line with the, the apostles. It is apostolic preaching, but it doesn't ring true for us, because for us, we, we've got a, such a complicated system that has been put into place this simple, and that's kind of what I'm going to do tonight. Good to see you, Rob and Ray. How you guys doing? Okay. Uh, hey, you're all, you got sound tonight, Ray. Well, I'm using my phone. Oh. <laughs> Dan tells me I'm I look black and white. Yes. I didn't know if that was just a reflection on the tr my true colors or if there is something in my. Come come over, Paul. Come over to uh, New Zealand and Australia. Come and visit us. You're black and white, the Kiwis, you're nearly there. <laughs> <laughs> I think he meant literally the color on my screen. Oh, did he? I thought it was a compliment to your, oh. Kiwi, your Kiwiness, your all black. What in the world are you guys talking about? <laughs> what have I walked in? What have I walked into? <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's, it's, a new, it's a new theory of atonement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you missed this one, Matt. What we are doing in this chapter, in chapter three, even though you may have had trouble, an idea, though, that I think is a very simple idea. That is, when you go back to the early church, this notion of Christus Victor, the notion of the death is in some way has us captive, that is just pervasive in the early church. And I'm going to turn to Ignatius here in a minute. But almost to understand Ignatius, we need to erase the board and start over. Because we have these understandings that come to us, and it really doesn't matter whether you're Arminian or Calvin, because it's all the same thing. We have the idea that God elected certain individuals to be saved or not be saved. Both Arminians and Calvinists believe that. They believe that partly because they both hold to some notion of original sin, in an Augustinian sense, original sin, you know, the Eastern Orthodox use that phrase, but what I mean is the Augustinian notion of an inherited guilt. And of course, the way that Arminians, what Arminians do in place of Calvinists, is they, they come up with the notion of prevenient grace. So you've got original sin, and, and then Calvinists say there is no prevenient grace, and Arminians say there is a prevenient grace. Well, wait a minute, we're doing this game all because of an Augustinian understanding. And none of this is necessary. None of these moves are necessary. Oh, then there's limited atonement. You need a limited atonement because it apparently the death of Christ didn't bear the full weight of the wrath of God because there's people still in hell suffering from the wrath of God, so we have to limit the atonement. And then there's this focus on will or you know freedom of the will. The, the shift between the early church and Constantinianism, partly what's taking place in that shift, there is a focus on freedom and sovereignty and away from focus on the love of God. It's a huge tragedy that no one seemed to notice. 
once you focus on freedom of trying to define freedom, and of course, Augustine is just playing off of Plato, that a Platonic understanding is talking primarily, you know, how to, about God's will. That's really not a concern in the New Testament or in the Bible, but that's going to become a primary concern in Christian theology. And so we live in a time in which it becomes almost impossible to rid ourselves of this theological conversation that is just focused on explaining God's sovereignty, human free will, you know, how can there be human free will and God's sovereignty? Let's just erase the board. We just don't need that discussion. It's not a discussion that's really there in the Bible, and it's certainly not a discussion in the early uh, among the, the church fathers. A re the reading I gave you on it was not great, because the reading I gave to you was actually written by a Baptist. I think he may have even been Southern Baptist. But even a Southern Baptist recognizes Baptists and Arminians share an understanding that we need to get rid of. You're never going to solve the problem between Arminianism and Calvinism, presuming the worldview that they both do. And of course, that worldview just, I, I think, is not biblical. So then, Paul, the foundational uh, false move that starts this whole problem is Augustine's original guilt. Is that, would that be right? Yes. You know, and to blame everything on Augustine, whether that's a category mistake, I don't know, because the church was already involved in bringing in a Greek philosophical understanding. But it's certainly the case that Augustine cements the deal, that after the Augustinian shift, that a Platonic philosophical understanding becomes predominant in a Western theological emphasis. And this is the irony of the Eastern Church, of course, being Greek-speaking, they're actually going to reject a Greek philosophical understanding. And so when you go back and you ask, okay, what was the atonement theory of somebody like Ignatius? Ignatius was, some say, a direct disciple of John, and some say was, in fact, appointed by Peter. Now, whether any of this is true, I don't know that it's true, but I'm just saying he's very early. We're not going to get earlier than Ignatius, uh, that Peter appointed him bishop of Antioch, or to take his place in Antioch. First of all, there is no notion of immortality among humans naturally in somebody like Ignatius, and with Ignatius, I'm going to claim, back into the apostles. It is the union of Jesus' immortality or his divine nature uh, with his mortal body. He's addressing the problem here that death is the problem, but death then is a corruption. Death, he's going to describe it as a disease, and he's going to continually describe Jesus as the great physician. In other words, this section here, chapter 3, we're talking about a healing atonement. This is from the letter to the Tralians. You know, Ignatius is being taken to his martyrdom, and he's writing letters to the churches as he goes. Abstain from the poison of heretics. I therefore, yet not I, but the love of Jesus Christ, entreat you that you use Christian nourishment only and abstain from herbage of a different kind. I mean heresy. That is, he's saying false teaching poisons you. It's, it's death dealing. For those that are given to this mix-up 
to mix up Jesus Christ with their own poison, speaking things which are not worthy of credit, like those who administer a deadly drug in sweet wine, which he who is ignorant does greedily take with a fatal pleasure, leading to his own death. In other words, he's using the language of death, but clearly death is more than simply dying. Death is an active taking up of false teaching and heresy. Death is this sick orientation. This is another quote. Be on your guard against the snares of the devil. And we see in Ignatius, he's going to equate the snares of the devil as we see it in Hebrews and Romans. The snares of the devil has to do with the fear of death. Back to the quote. Not that I know there is anything of this kind among you, but I put you on your guard inasmuch as I love you greatly and foresee the snares of the devil. Wherefore, clothing yourselves with meekness, be renewed in faith. How you save from the snares of the devil? Well, you put on Christ, you put on meekness, you do what Christ did. And then he specifies, that is the flesh of the Lord. And in love, that is the blood of Jesus Christ. I think he's also dealing with the, the, you know, he's dealing with the heretics as Irenaeus was, and what they would do is talk about the flesh and blood of Jesus as if it didn't matter. And what he's going to do every time he mentions this, he's going to say the way you're saved is you put on the flesh of Christ. You do what you, in other words, it's an embodied reality. You remember with Irenaeus, we said a very similar thing. I think it's very much here in Ignatius. They have an idea of the body that in some way we've been dispossessed of. And that is the body is the, the communion, the community. And so when Christ put on flesh, he has put on this community, this communion. That's a very postmodern view. That's a very Wittgensteinian view of enfleshment and embodiment, but it is the early church view. In other words, I'm thinking with once we pass through modernity to post-modernity, we're actually passing back to an understanding of the body that was there, not in Greek thought. In other words, the Greeks would do what we tend to do, split it into soul and body and spirit. The early church would have none of that. Here he is addressing specifically the heresy of docetism. Avoid the deadly errors, and he's going to use this language. This is, the, flee therefore those evil offshoots of Satan, which produce death-bearing fruit, whereof if anyone tastes, he instantly dies. For these men are not the planting of the Father, for if they were, they would appear as branches of the cross, and their fruit would be incorruptible. By it, he calls you through his passion. And you're going to, I won't go into the, he uses the word passion here, the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, in the sense that he's putting on human passion and not defined by it, that he calls you through his passion as being his members. The head, therefore, cannot be borne by itself without its members. God, who is the Savior himself, having promised their union. So the language throughout Ignatius, throughout Irenaeus, you can choose life or death. And notice what we're not talking about. We're not talking about punishment. We're not talking about hell. We're not talking about Jesus saving us from the wrath of God. That just does not fit. 
and it's it's not there in uh, Ignatius. So he connects being renewed in faith to the flesh of the Lord. In, in his mind, you cannot, you know, this is Paul, but this is Ignatius, you can't deny the embodiment of Christ and be a Christian. That is, the love of Jesus the, the, is through the flesh, the love, uh, the blood of Jesus. I doubt that he, he may be referring to the Eucharist, but he, he certainly is talking about putting on the flesh of Christ, and he's going to use the language of participation in Christ, that by participation in Christ, specifically in his humanity, participation in the enfleshment of Christ, you're saved. And, and he's going to use the language of healing throughout. He sees the flesh and blood of Jesus. It, first of all, what does it undo? It undoes foolishness. It undoes evil. It undoes vanity. It undoes death. It undoes the sickness. And I mean, he's not using Kierkegaard, but he might as well be talking about the sickness unto death. One more quote. But for seeing the snares of the wicked one, I am beforehand by my admonitions as my beloved and faithful children of Christ, furnishing you with the means of protection and literally making you drink beforehand what will preserve you. You know, Ignatius is going to talk about if you're not preserved, he'll literally say you're nothing. You're undone. You're preserved against the deadly disease of unruly men by which do ye flee from the disease by the goodwill of Christ our Lord? Do ye therefore, clothing yourselves with meekness, become imitators of his suffering and of his love, wherewith he loved us? Once you erase the Calvinistic, Arminian notion, what's the human predicament? And of course, all of this could just be a reflection on Romans chapter 5. At the head of one race of men is Adam, and what Adam introduces into the world is not necessarily sin for all, but it's death, and death then is a corruption which they become oriented to. And the second Adam is at the head of another race of men, or a, you know, the second Adam undoes what the first Adam did, who provides life. It's a very simple picture, first of all, of the predicament, the predicament is one of being oriented to death. The devil controls this. It's a disease. It's a sickness. It's a kind of enslavement. And the resolution, the healing love of Jesus is thematic. So, Paul, um, is it safe to say that immortality of the soul is a pagan idea? Yeah, it's right out of Plato. Right. It's, it's the idea we're immortal, that we're like God. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's certainly not Hebraic. It's certainly not Christian. It's only seeped into Christianity because because of a kind of Augustinian tendency, so that now people will talk about the innate immortality of the soul as if that's a Christian doctrine. That all weighs into judgment and the arguments about eternal fire or other an annihilation or universalism. I mean that those all play in the immortality of the soul is going to shape those different, uh, the rejection of it or the acceptance of it's going to shape those beliefs. Absolutely. That's that, that when we start talking about innate immortality of the soul, even God can't destroy you. And hell is kind of an unsuccessful project of God attempting to destroy you. 
the lie of Satan is put into place, you've become like gods. Right. Uh, you're indestructible. That's just not there in Ignatius. It's not there in the New Testament. Now, there are people who may, you know, people who may believe in eternal torturous existence may not necessarily believe in, in the, the innate immortality of the soul, but I think they usually do in a kind of unthinking way. Back 30 years ago or so, I, some theologians began to realize, hey, wait a minute, immortality is in God alone. That's a biblical quote, <laughs> you know? People began to question, but then, then there were still people who would still believe in a eternal torturous existence. But usually those two doctrines have gone together. I mean, um, just the immortality of the soul is, I don't know where you guys live, but where I live, that's just common doctrine. That's to actually oppose that might even brand you a heretic. Yeah. I'm teaching you a lot of ways to get fired. <laughs> And, and of course, it, uh, everything sort of falls apart for a lot of people if you talk about, well, no, it's only Jesus who gives us eternal life. I mean, that's what the New Testament is about, that we have life in Christ. Ignatius says this point blank. He says there's either life or there's death. That's the two, two sides of the coin. The, that's the choice before you. At one point, he'll talk about, he talks about apparitions and ghosts. But what he in another place he says, well, you become nothing. You're reduced to nothing. And what he means by that, this is the corruption that they're uh, talking about. Death. Death is a is a total corruption. Now that doesn't mean that we're not made for eternity. Certainly, we're made for immortality. But we're made for that immortality in knowing God, in being joined to God in Christ. It's not something that we have naturally. I'm just trying to clear my mind of all this, but I'll hear somebody say, uh, well, in the garden, Adam and Eve, I mean, when God said they were going to die, he meant they were going to spiritually die. And that's really just a cover up for the same immortality of the soul. No, they're going to die. Death, death has entered in. They've brought death into the world uh, is the correct answer. Whereas the, the spiritual death is just mumble jumble jargon. The Hebraic idea you know, we get this even in the life of Jesus. You know, the, the, among the Jews, there's this debate, is there even life after death? And the reason they could have such a debate is because most of the Hebrew Scriptures, when it talks about death, it talks about from dust to dust, that a, an annihilation. It talks about a complete... You know, there's a few Scriptures that, that uh, may talk about a survival, but the overwhelming majority talk about total annihilation. So for Jews to even believe in life after death, that was controversial because of the nature of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not controversial in Greek philosophy, because in a Platonic understanding, which, by the way, is the Kantian understanding, Kant's going to argue for the immortality of the soul for the same reason that Plato does, but in a Platonic understanding, the truth resides in a kind of immortal truth, and that immortal truth must reside in within, in reason. He needs the immortality of the soul for his philosophical system to work. Kant's going to do something very similar. What is the human predicament? You know, first of all, when we talk about freedom, I think we have this notion once we pass through Augustine, 
that what we mean by freedom or freedom of will is freedom of choice. That is simply not an issue in somebody like Ignatius. If you don't know Christ, how can you have freedom? But just think a minute. This is, this is just a practical understanding. The, our understanding uh, and choices are always based on the contingencies of our own situation, right? In other words, that, that we all have a, a horizon of understanding that is determinative of who and what we are. It is not so much a matter of will, that's just what it means to be finite, that what it means to be limited and finite, that you are then bound by a particular situation, by a particular contingency. And that's my understanding of the failure of humanity is not, oh, we don't need to look inside of people and find something cognitively wrong or willfully wrong. I think what's wrong with humanity is just clear in the that we're all born into families and places and countries and uh, situations that are by their very nature a failed situation that is the shaping force in our life. And when Christ, Matt, quote the verse to us there. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How could we possibly be free apart from being what God intended for us to be. And the failure of being what God intended us to be is to be enslaved. I, I think we have cognition, we have will. It's not That's not the issue. The issue is that in Christ we encounter and we have the possibility of being made what we were meant to be. Once we have this kind of simple understanding of what a human being is, that we are creatures we are mortal, we are finite, and to imagine that we ever have freedom of choice in some sort of infinite, in that sense, even God is constrained by who he is. Yeah, it's not a being free of constraint, being free of uh, contingency. Everything is constrained. Even God is constrained by his character. And so the modern definitions of freedom that flowing out of a Platonic understanding of freedom, it's a contradiction. There is no such thing as freedom of choice, total freedom of choice. Is it similar or parallel to that modern distinction between freedom from and freedom to? Freedom from would be freedom not to be enslaved to sin, and freedom to would be pursuing rainbows and unicorns, I guess. <laughs> David Bentley Hart actually does a nice job of running this down in his book on universalism. Whether you agree with the thesis of that book, that section of the book is quite ingenious. And that is this whole thing that we've got that Arminians and Calvinists have been engaged in. You know, our natural instinct, I want to throw off all constraints. I want to be completely free. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want no authority telling me what to do. What would that freedom look like? If nothing constrains, I hope you're hearing the nothing. If nothing constrains, literally, that is the constraint of death, right? That is death. I'm not simply playing with words here, because that's what Hegel is actually going to, to do. In other words, this is the primary thing in German idealism. They're going to turn to freedom as the primary virtue, primary value. 
how can you have a free will or freedom and being human is connected? And what Hegel comes up with is, is precisely this formula where nothing constrains. And that nothing, <laughs> then he plays with the word nothingness. And of course, I think that's the ultimate constraint. So what freedom is for us is truly that freedom to be what God made us to be. I think that's what Christ means when he says he sets us free. I don't believe there is freedom outside of Christ. I found a, a Hebrew grammar page. They, they mentioned that in that little phrase, you will die, because in the day you eat from it, you will die. This person called that a intensifying infinitive absolute. <laughs> the person that wrote that article wrote it as dying, you will die. To me, there's an element of a continuous action or a continuous, uh, it's not just you will die. All my life, I've just thought, okay, die would be like a period at the end of a sentence. And in the story, they keep, they continue to live. So this, this idea of uh, the Hebrew dying, you will die, that would be a product and a process. So as a process, the lie combines with the desire and the product is it creates an emptiness, it breaks relationship, channels shame into pride, channels loss of identity into violence. And the product death requires more lie to hide behind, requires more desire to fill the emptiness. So it's like a self-feeding mechanism or process. Death cannot just live on its own. It's not self-sustaining. It lives on our fear and despair, drives us into decisions and feeds inner conflicts. And these decisions and reactions cause more conflicts, sins. And you're rejecting the notion of insurance rightly. In other words, what we have is not insurance for the future. You know, divine satisfaction, penal substitution are, I think, forms of atonement theory that pertain more to an insurance of the future than a resolution to a holistic problem. That is certainly in the present, but we don't mean to limit it to that. That is the resurrection. This is why, again, I was struck again by Ignatius when he talks about resurrection is the cure. You know, and, and he lists a series of scriptures. Put this thought together. Resurrection is forgiveness. Resurrection is purification. In a modern theological context, that doesn't work. That's right out of the Bible. Ignatius is just referencing the Bible. You know, in the speeches in Acts, when they talk about resurrection, this is a fulfillment of the promise of forgiveness through the Messiah. Why that? Why would resurrection be forgiveness and purification? Only if death is a captivity and corruption. Our understanding, you know, in a modern atonement theory, we really don't, it, resurrection is just a kind of sign of, oh, the cross worked, or here's the seal of, of victory. Well, no, resurrection is the end point in the biblical understanding that if death is what has us captive through the devil, or, you know, that, that's the language, or resurrection is an immediate sign of freedom. That's just the simple concept that's there in Scripture, that through the corruption of theology, we've lost. And insurance, we're talking about a kind of legal theory. Uh, we're talking about a legal fiction. That sort of legal fiction language 
it's just not there in the early in Ignatius or Irenaeus, or I think in, up until we come to uh, Augustine. Well, in some sense, it doesn't deal with the with the issue. It's like if I ignore my finances, they just don't disappear. And so, penal substitution or divine satisfaction, they don't deal with the problem of death per se. They don't deal. Uh, they don't deal with the evil. It doesn't really get to the root of the problem. That's it. The evil doesn't even enter into the equation. Yeah, that, that struck me when I was teaching two classes back to back. I was teaching theology and then apologetics. It's very natural to bring up the problem of evil in an apologetics course. But in your theology courses, did anybody ever bring up the problem of evil? Usually don't, because it doesn't enter into the equation. Go back and read Ignatius. Go back and read an Irenaeus. The way they're going to talk about evil, the devil, Ignatius talks about these heretical dogs, that their bite is death-dealing. You know, evil is a real-world falseness, false teaching for him. And of course, the, the next step is that what the way that Paul is actually dealing with evil, it is the connection of life and the law, the law, the letter of the law, as taken as the weight, that is the source of evil. We'll come to that later in the book. I spell that out in probably too much detail. But Just, just a brief add-on to um, what you guys have been saying. If the solution is an insurance policy, not only doesn't, yeah, it doesn't address the real issue, but it also doesn't grow people. So I'm always amazed that you have Christians in church for 20, 30 years, and they'll tell you how they're saved, they're going to heaven, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there's still, still the same difficult, <laughs> willful, self-righteous people that they've always been. And they don't even realize that that's not good. <laughs> they need to change. <laughs> but their uh, atonement theory allows them to say, but I'm saved, brother. I'm a sinner saved by grace. So, so even discipleship's hard. It's hard to engage those people with discipleship because what do I need that for? I'm saved. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to heaven. <laughs> My ticket's booked. It's all good. The insurance policy is paid up. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a tragedy. No, and that is the tragedy. I mean, that's the, that is the tragedy, is that the beauty and love, the joy of the Christian life. Whenever I say these things, I'm, I'm not addressing anybody. I'm not leaving myself out of this. Oh, all of there, us, yeah. there is a Christianity that can just kind of make you miss that. Uh, because we're all sick, that we all need the, the great physician. We all have the disease. I'm talking about Ignatius. I happen to have been reading Ignatius today. He, he, it's not like when he's talking about the heretics that he's saying that Christ didn't buy you out of slavery in a Calvinist sense, you know, oh, that you're not chosen. He's saying, oh, no, you were bought out of slavery, and yet you're not taking the cure. You're not taking the medicine. That's the kind of language he'll he'll use. So the medicine is available for everyone, but you have to take it. And I'm I'm afraid we have a Christianity that prevents us from taking the medicine, from taking the cure. I, I like Ignatius. That Ignatius guy's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was going. Isn't doesn't Ignatius also also say something about the Eucharist being uh, the medicine of immortality? Just throwing that out there. And yeah, I, co I quoted that one. And okay. whether he talks about the flesh and the blood of Jesus, in other words, whenever he's talking about the cure, he over and against the Decetists or those who would 
in some way spiritualize or disembody Jesus. He's always emphasizing the flesh and blood. And it's not clear, even in the quotation, some say he's referring to the Eucharist. Some are saying, well, he may just be referring to the liturgy. But either way, it is focused on the enfleshment, yes. In other words, I think that the problem that Christianity is addressing is precisely the problem that divine satisfaction and penal substitution are promoting. Divine satisfaction uses violence as a means, wrath as a motive, and torture as a solution. Penal substitution providing a logic for divine satisfaction is also contrived and dependent on a legal framework that surrounds the cosmos itself, is larger than God, carries more authority, and dismisses mercy. That is it. I don't mean to be perverse in this. I think that what Paul is addressing when he talks about the law, he talk, and, and he isn't simply talking about Judaism, and the letter of the law kills. In other words, in Romans, in Galatians, he's describing the universal predicament in which we imagine that we can in some way manipulate the law, that life is in the law. That's not a, simply a Jewish problem, that's a human problem. And divine satisfaction and penal substitution just play into that. They play into that because it makes all the sense in the world, because that's the way we always think. Anselm is kind of ingenious. I really think he gets modern rationality up and running in his description of why a God-man, you know, why did Christ die? He almost makes it mathematically necessary. But of course, it's a legal fiction. It's an economic fiction, actually, at Anselm. He's describing a zero-sum game. There's only so much room in heaven. Only so many angels have fallen. We're going to eventually get limited atonement. You know, it's going to become full-blown in Calvin, but I think it's already there in Anselm, because his theory is such there is only so much room, and the death of Christ only pays the penalty or renews the honor of God so much. Anselm really is using the language of penalty. It, it is there. Punishment is there. And he talks about the death of Christ, that, you know, those who killed him, what's the greatest sin that you can commit? Would it, it would be to kill the Son of God. And for that transgression, there is no payment. But if you kill the Son of God in ignorance, he talks about it in terms of money, that there is actually a, a leftover amount that you've not committed the greatest sin because you're ignorant of it, and therefore there is some remainder left in the price that is paid, so that it would cover those who killed him. He's talking like a banker and, and figuring this all out. But I think this is what he's doing is giving us a, a kind of sophisticated, rational picture of any kind of pagan. This is the way pagan thought always works. We got to pay the gods. We got to satiate their wrath. We've got to restore, you know, what's been taken from them. Penal substitution is just worse. It just takes it a step further and makes it pure paganism. When I'm saying these things, don't hear that I'm saying, oh, the love of Jesus is squelched. No, you can't squelch the love of Jesus, that Christ is always going to break through. But boy, we can sure do a lot to create an obstacle to the love of Christ. I'm, I'm counting, you know, my good evangelical brothers and sisters, because that's where I came, you know, that's uh, that I'm not counting anybody out by talking this way. But I think we do need to talk this way and say, oh, this is precisely what Christianity is not. Uh, it is Paul, precisely the problem. On that point, I've 
noticed and uh, and do recognize the divine satisfaction in penal substitution that's so pervasive in basically all those who have taught me Christian living and theology heretofore, uh, prior to this at least. But I do see theosis and the participation model trying to push through in, in things like, I mean, this was way back to my freshman year in college, having a copy of John MacArthur's book, The Cost of Discipleship, he riffed off of Bonhoeffer, I guess, but it was basically saying that you got justification, and that's the legal side of it, but then you also have sanctification, which is the participation side. And he didn't speak in that term, participation, but he, it's the practical living and growing in holiness aspect of salvation. And when is so far as even to say that if that's not present, then you haven't really experienced true conversion or justification, I believe. So the fruit is proof of the actual faith. So I, I see that as certainly it's in that model, but it's trying to make reconcile uh, with the rest of scripture. And I think it's worth noting. And, and that fact, uh, the point that you're saying is that, you know, evangelicals aren't necessarily as lost as it may seem like as we paint the picture of what the true biblical message is. It's, it's always, we're always trying to um, get it right and correct what came, came before us and yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. Uh, we can all give testimony to the, some of the best people that we know. The mystery of the love of Christ is something that we just have to accept. And this is kind of Hart's point. You know, you can compare the first church and what they taught, and then the Constantinian church. And of course, he doesn't even count Calvinism as Christian. That the one is opposed to the other. But nonetheless, we can't say that the church is only here, or that we cannot be exclusive. And so the work of God, the mystery of Christ, we have to acknowledge that. And I think we have, but at the same time, I think we cannot be hesitant in saying, well, here is the biblical picture. Here is what we find in Christ, the apostles in the New Testament. And it's not as if you've lost out on Christ if you fail in, in your theology. But I, I'm afraid that there are some who, in fact, as Ignatius describes it, the bite of this dog is poisonous for some, that it does, in fact, it can be death-dealing for some. And certainly to miss out on the love of God, you know, this is kind of Hart's point. Do people really believe in eternal torture's existence? Yeah, I kind of doubt they really believe that. If they, if they think about it about 10 minutes. I was 18 years old, a freshman in Bible college, and we just sat down and we thought about it about 15 minutes. Says, nah, that <laughs> can't be. Uh, maybe because I was particularly slow-witted and slow to get indoctrinated like everybody else. I've always thought that being slow was a great advantage because I probably didn't understand what I should have been understanding. I think that that's always what we're describing, is that something that is false, something that is nothing, you can't really, the, the, the belief or attachment to it is not to be taken as, you know, a, a, that it's a very difficult thing to believe a lie in a, in a complete sense. Oh, I've tried to I've tried to stay out of your way tonight because, you know, when someone's, when someone, you know, when we used to play basketball and someone was on fire, you know, you would just say, all right, everybody clear out and give, you know, give Paul the ball. He's on fire right now. 
So everybody just clear out, you know. But I was thinking about how, you know, if someone asked me, what is salvation? I would just say, well, it's union with God. And so what is it that breaks that union with God? Well, as you've been saying, it's death taken up into our personhood that results in sin. So these are the things that we would need saved from so that we can be united with God. But of course, doesn't penal substitution say that it was the alienation of Christ from the Father that saves us? You know, that it was the dereliction, that it was the, uh, in other words, it's kind of like a strange, the whole thing is kind of a strange inversion of everything that you've been saying throughout this class, you know, that uh, even something as pious sounding as death is replaced with sin, right? That, in other words, there's all sorts of different inversions that, that keep happening. And the, the ultimate uh, inversion is the goodness and love of God being inverted with some other sort of ghastly figure of God uh, that we need saved from. So in other words, like it's what we're saying is, is well, what it means to be saved is to be united with God, whereas others are saying, no, actually, God's who you need saved from. I guess, Brian, that would be the thing to add on to this. The the church is in crisis. The leadership of the church is in crisis. The morality of the church is in crisis. Uh, We're being inundated by just scandal. It's not scandal in a good sense, the scandal of the cross, but scandal in the worldly sense, that there is a kind of failure. And I would trace this failure back. I think it's not a separate issue from what we're talking about here, that people have missed out on the love of God, on discipleship, on just the, the joy of the Christian life. And that then is must be part and parcel of the failure, the, the, and obviously not a complete failure, but a clear and obvious failure to the world. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.